Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We'll be continuing a series on the book of James titled The Undivided Life. Um, we've been working through this book section by section every single time I get the opportunity to preach. And now this morning, we're going to be looking at a strong warning about God's impending judgment in chapter 4, verse 11, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. As I think about this, the first thing that came to my mind when I consider warnings is the leaflets that were dropped over Japan in World War II. These leaflets would often contain propaganda messages um, with calls to surrender or uh, things aimed at decreasing enemy morale. But the leaflets were also used as warnings. Here's an example from one of those leaflets. Read this carefully, as it may save your life or the life of a relative or a friend. In the next few days, some or all of the cities named on the reverse side will be destroyed by American bombs. These cities contain military installations and workshops or factories which produce military goods. We cannot promise only these cities will be among those attacked but some or all of them will be. So heed this warning and evacuate these cities immediately. These leaflets warned people about the coming destruction so that they could be ready for it and hopefully avoid it by evacuating cities and things like that. Well, the section we're going to be looking at today from the book of James is a lot like these wartime leaflets. James is warning us in this section about the coming wrath of God. And he's warning us that those who refuse to find shelter in Christ won't be spared. But God's giving this to us so that we can be ready, so that we can prepare ourselves. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at four things that we need to do to be prepared for the coming judgment of God. So if you have your Bible with you, please take it out and turn to James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one um, in the chairs in front of you. And on that paperback Bible, it's on page 587. So looking at James chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Can you stand now for the reading of God's Word? James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that you would send your spirit and do a work in our hearts that only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first way that we must prepare for God's coming judgment is to let God judge. This is the way we prepare for the coming judgment. We let God be the one who does the judging. You see this in verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So who's the last person that you've spoken evil against? Or to put this into context, who's the last person you've criticized? Who's the last person you've slandered or gossiped about? Who's the last person you talked about behind their back? James says here, when we talk like this, we're making ourselves the judge of other people. We're basically saying, I'm better than you, and because I'm better than you, I am qualified to judge and to condemn you. This is the sin of judgmentalism, which is exactly what Brian talked about last week. This is when we adopt a negative, critical spirit towards others. But what's interesting in this particular context is that James says that this kind of judgmentalism is not just a judgment of our neighbor. It's also a judgment of God's law. When we speak evil of one another we're essentially choosing to ignore the numerous commands in the Bible against it. We're basically saying, I get to decide which laws apply to me and which ones don't. And so in this way, we're no longer under the law. We have now become the judge of the law. We're no longer doing it. We're now judging it. Problem with this is, no matter how much we pretend to be the judge of others, We aren't really qualified for this job. All of us have failed to live up to not only God's standards, but even our own. And many times when we judge other people, we have done the exact same thing that we are judging them for. 
The Apostle Paul, he talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves? that you will escape the judgment of God? These are very strong words from the apostle here, but I think they're words that we need to hear. Think about it like this. At the end of your life, I believe God could show you a time. He could just put a picture before your mind of every time you judged another person for something. And then right next to that, I think God could bring up another image of your life show you another example, and if we're all honest, probably a lot of different examples, of you doing the very same thing that you judged this other person for doing. And Paul is saying, what excuse would you have in that situation? You knew this thing was wrong, you spoke openly about how it was wrong, and then you did it yourself. By our own words, I think we would be self-condemned and the judgment of God would rightly fall on us. But thankfully, what we see in this text here is that we are not the judge. As James says, there's actually only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. There's only one person who is truly qualified to evaluate our lives. God is the only one without sin, and therefore, he is the only one. Look at the text there specifically. It says, he is the only one who is able not only to destroy, but also to save. I think this is kind of the first hint we get of the gospel in this passage. If you want to be saved rather than destroyed, then part of that includes stop trying to do God's job for him. You need to repent of the ways you speak evil of other people because God is going to bring judgment on those who focus on everyone else's sins but never repent of their own. So the first way we prepare for ourselves is to let God judge. The second way is to let God control. Let God have control in your life. This is what we see in verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So this section's really interesting because it kind of gives us the inner thinking of a first century entrepreneur, right? And they've evaluated the marketplace, they've done kind of all their research on what's going on, and they've, they've come to the conclusion that this new startup business of theirs, they believe, could be quite profitable. And so they've picked out a few potential cities for the launch of this new enterprise, and now they're, they're kind of planning their next steps. And you can just imagine almost like James barges into this meeting and he says, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Your life is like a fog that appears in the morning and is gone before lunchtime. How can you be so confident about what's going to happen tomorrow when you don't even know if you'll be here tomorrow? 
Where is God in your plans? Doesn't he have a say here? Isn't his will what ultimately matters? James is rebuking these businessmen because they think they are in control of their lives. They arrogantly make plans with no regard for the Lord. And they assume things will happen according to their will. Now maybe that sounds a little bit familiar. Maybe this is the way you make and talk about your plans. Maybe you also assume that you are in control of your life. Well, what James is telling us is here is, is that's not actually the way it works. Just because you will something does not mean that it will happen. It's ultimately God's will that determines everything, and you cannot do anything apart from his will. You can't even be sure that you're going to live till tomorrow. About 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I were on a date. It was right before we had our first daughter. We were on a date in Fort Wayne. We used to live up north. And on our ride home from that, it was, it was nighttime, it was very dark, we were very close to home when all of a sudden a car came veering over into our side, flew right in front of us, it hit the, hit the side and flipped up, spinning around, it falls 25 feet down into a ravine. I mean, unbelievable situation. Thankfully, the girl was okay, she did have some vertebrae broken, she was drunk that night. Um, but it was an unbelievable situation where if we had left one Five seconds earlier, we would be dead. We would have died that night. If we would have left five seconds earlier, if we would have gone, you know, a fraction faster, we would be dead. I would not be here this morning. And James's point here is that could happen at any time to any of us. You could die at any moment. You might not make it home from this service today. And that's what James is saying. If the Lord wills, we will live And the implication there as well is if the Lord wills, we won't. We will die. I know this isn't a fun thing to think about, but this is the reality that we live in. When we make plans or we think about the future, we must do so in light of God's sovereignty. And because of that, we need to get in the habit of saying, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such a thing. Christians in the past, they would often do this by writing D period V period at the end of whatever they wrote to other people. This is the Latin word meaning Deo Volante, which just means God willing. Now I have to be clear here, James isn't saying that you must say Lord willing after every statement about the future. The Bible gives us lots of examples where the Apostle Paul, um, the Apostle John, Even Jesus himself make plans and they don't say God willing. They don't say Lord willing. This isn't about using the exact words every time you talk about the future. I actually think it's much deeper than that. This is about having the right attitude of the heart every time you think about the future. And so I would actually encourage you to just try this. Try saying Lord willing or God willing or Deo Volante whenever you're talking and thinking about the future. I I believe saying those words out loud can direct your heart in the right direction. And it reminds you, oh yeah, God's the one who's in control here. God's the one who's over my life, who's sovereign over my life. 
We should make plans for the future, but we should always submit those plans to the will of God. We should hold our plans, not with a a tight-fisted grip, but an open grip saying, Lord, you're in control. I'm making plans, I've got ideas, but ultimately you're in control here and I trust you. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. We can trust him. And we can trust him even as we think about the end of our lives when we stand before him in judgment. So we must let God have control. We must also let God repay. We're going to be prepared for judgment. We need to let God repay. Now, this is a long section. I'm going to read it all again because I just think it's helpful for us to hear the word more than it's helpful necessarily for you to hear my word. So here's what James says, verse 1 through 8. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So notice here that James starts this section with the same words that he started the last section. Come now. Some people think that that means that this is referring to the same people in both sections, but I don't actually think that's the case. I think this is the first time that James is clearly addressing unbelievers. These rich unbelievers are told about the future punishments, the future miseries that are coming upon them. And so you might think of this more as a pronouncement of judgment than a warning. And that seems kind of strange when you really think about it. Why address unbelievers here? Why address those who will probably never read this letter? What's kind of the point? Well, for one thing, I think James um, thinks that some people in his church weren't really believers. That's a possibility here. And so he's, he's painting this vivid picture of judgment so that it might shake these unbelievers into repentance and faith. But I think the main reason James talks about the judgment of unbelievers here is to bring courage and to bring comfort to those who are suffering at these people's hands. Look at what the unbelieving rich here are doing. Look at verse 4. It says, They're withholding wages from the poor workers and committing fraud against them. And they're doing that not because they they need the money. Verse 5 says that they're living on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. But it goes even further. In verse 6, we see they haven't just prevented these poor people from having enough food to eat for a day. They've actually condemned them and even murdered them. It's hard to hear that description and not think that James has some really specific situation in his mind. Probably a situation that his early original audience would have known quite well. And so I think it can maybe be helpful to just put ourselves in in, in their shoes for a second. So just imagine what that would have been like. Imagine someone in your family has been cheated out of money that they rightfully earned by some greedy boss. 
And then when they try to resolve that, that, that rich man, um, he has your family member condemned, accused, put in prison, whatever it might be, and then somehow has him killed. Imagine how you would have felt in that situation, in those circumstances. I think this is why James uses such strong language here. He's trying to encourage these believers who something like this has happened to them. He's trying to encourage them that evil is not going to win out in the end. Their cries for justice have been heard by the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of angelic armies. God is gathering his troops, in a sense, is what James wants them to hear. He is preparing to come again to right all the wrongs in the world and to punish the wicked. But that day hasn't come yet. And so in verse 7, James tells these believers, you've got to be patient. You have to patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. And that means you have to learn how to endure suffering and not retaliate on those who cause the suffering. Instead, you're to wait patiently for the Lord. Again, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 12. Repay evil, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is great encouragement, saying the Lord will fight our battles. We don't need to seek revenge for ourselves because God will repay those who do us evil. God will get the revenge. He will not let that injustice go unpunished, but his timetable is often very different than our timetable. And we must learn to wait for his final vindication. So what this means for us today is that we've got to be able to turn over these situations where someone wronged us, turn them over to the Lord. When someone does evil to us, we must, again, learn how to let God get the revenge. This doesn't mean never sticking up for yourself. It doesn't mean anything like that. But it does mean we don't do things to get back at people who wronged us. We don't seek revenge. We don't hold grudges. Instead, We repay these people with good. We seek their welfare. We pray for them. And we ask that God would so overwhelmingly defeat his enemies that they would become his friends. So we must let God, let God uh, control, I forgot what it was, let God repay. And then lastly, we must let God reward. Let God reward. Looking at verses 9 through 11. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So who's the most blessed person you know? That's what James is kind of focusing on here just a little bit. Who's the most blessed person you know? How would you answer that? What kind of criteria would you use for determining it? 
I think most of us would probably look to something like ease and comfort. I think we might subtly believe that those who suffer least are the most blessed. But this isn't the perspective of the Bible. In this last last section here, James is going to show us that true blessedness frequently comes on the far side of suffering rather than the near side. Just look at the examples that James chooses here. They're very unique. First, he shows the prophets. The prophets suffered greatly. You can read about them in, in Hebrews 11, about the suffering that they went through. And yet, James says here, they proclaimed the word, and because of that, now we consider them blessed because they remained steadfast under trial. And then we get the example of Job here, another man who went through great hardship and yet remained faithful to the Lord. But think about how Job's story ends. He got a personal experience of the sovereign goodness of God and his fortunes were restored. He got to see firsthand the purpose of the Lord. It doesn't mean all his questions were answered, but he did learn that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He learned that God was working all things for his good, even in the midst of his suffering, and even if he couldn't understand it completely. And you know, this is still the way the Lord works today. We might not get everything back that suffering has taken from us, at least in this life, but we can know that the Lord is working all things for our good. And if we remain patient, there is a judgment coming, not when God will punish us, but when he will reward us and bring us home at last. And you know what? James has already mentioned this. He's already talked about this back in chapter 1. Look at what he says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is promised to those who love the Lord and persevere through suffering. As counterintuitive as it might sound, for those who are in Christ, we prepare for judgment by anticipating it, by looking forward to it, and thinking of the reward it will be of being in God's presence. There is one more final warning here. Look back at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We are not to grumble against one another as we prepare for that final day. Instead, we should seek to help one another, stir one another up to love and good works, for the end is near. It's nearer now than it was a few minutes ago when you walked through those doors. The judge is standing at the door. Are you ready for him to open that door? And the good news of the gospel is you don't have to wait until the final day to have an answer to that. Because this is what Jesus himself says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you will trust Jesus, then you can have eternal life right now now. If you will believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification, then you can know that you have passed from death to life. 
The not guilty verdict over your life was pronounced 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished. If you are in relationship with Christ, then you don't have to fear the judgment of God because the judgment of God for your sins was already poured out on the cross. As we think about the coming judgment of God, we can not only be ready for it, but we can have confidence Not because I'm such a good person or because I did all the right things, but because I have a Savior who stood in my place. And because of that, that allows us to say, as we think about the coming judgment, we can say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful you sent your Son for us to die on the cross in our place so that you could make us ready to stand in your presence. And Lord, we do pray now, even now, that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.